Hello and welcome to episode 242 of the In Squash podcast. I'm your host, Jerry Gibson, and what a return to Hong Kong that was. Uh, two tremendous talents emerging victorious uh, in Hanya El Hamami and Mustafa Asal. Two great finals there, Norel Sherbini, Diego Elias, both played off their rockers throughout the whole event, and the finals were not uh, did not disappoint uh, a, a fair bit of drama and both uh, some tremendous squash from all four players and it was uh, it was great to see squash back in Hong Kong again at that iconic uh, event the Hong Kong Open uh, well on the heels of this and also the first half of the PSA season we have none other than Squash TV's own Johnny Williams to help break it all down for us Johnny provides his take on uh, the matches from yesterday on the event uh, itself and a few of the issues uh, from yesterday's matches that surfaced uh, including the John Mazzarella non-review at game ball in the fourth in the, on the ball that uh, Diego Elias definitely saw as up and the review uh, clearly shows that it did hit the front wall now the debate is did it hit the tin on the way down uh, I'm not sure I haven't seen it clearly nor has the PSA uh, come up with a statement uh, following that you think they would they should uh, when you get uh, officiating a uh, serious officiating uh, miscues uh, like that or uh, it could have very easily been solved it could have been uh, deemed inconclusive had it been looked at I'm not sure what uh, Mazzarella was thinking but Johnny Williams is going to break that all down for us he also uh, uh, talks about how the first half of the season played out along with uh, how he see, sees things developing in 2023. A tremendous chat uh, with Johnny Williams. Uh, but before we get there, let's talk about uh, our sponsor here on the podcast, Open Squash, the New York-based nonprofit dedicated to bringing thousands of new people into the sport by making it more accessible and more affordable for everyone. One of the ways Open Squash fulfills this mission is through their Junior Scholarship Fund, amongst other initiatives, which helps support 25% of juniors with financial aid. If you go on to the website, you can actually see how you can contribute uh, to supporting uh, Junior Squash as well. Um, now, Open Squash's primary vision is, of course, growing the game, and they've brought on board several like-minded PSA pros, including uh, world number one, Ali Farag, Victor Quinn, Gina Kennedy, Nathan Lake, amongst others. Now, if you're based uh, in or around New York City, you might uh, want to check out their holiday squash camp, which is running from December 26th through the 30th. Just visit www.opensquash.org to check this out and to also check out all the other initiatives that they have on there which involve growing the game and also if you're interested in uh, donating to the Junior Squash Initiative that they have, I believe there's a link on there for that as well. So check it out at opensquash.org. And now let's get this show on the road. Johnny Williams shows up big here on episode two. 42. Johnny, it's uh, fantastic uh, to have you uh, on the podcast, and I hope all is well. Uh, good to see uh, you know your young family there uh, 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 around the, the house and enjoying uh, life. <laughs> Uh, but November and December, uh, we're gonna we're here just to talk, I guess, a little bit of uh, you know the Hong Kong Open, which just wrapped up, and we've had so much squash over the last uh, couple of months, and you've been. Uh, been a big part of it uh this season with, with 
with uh, Squash TV. And uh, we'll, we'll talk uh, about some other stuff as well. But uh, before we get get into it, I know uh, for I knew anyways that you that you played on the PSA and you had a had a pretty good career there. But maybe some people who might not or might be new to the game or might be younger, might not know about your backstory. So uh, if you don't mind, uh, give us a little backstory on Johnny, uh, Johnny Williams, the PSA pro and uh, you know, your, your squash uh, backstory. Yeah, no problems. Uh, I started uh, in 91, joined the tour January 91. I joined with a, with a, a bunch of uh, Aussies uh, that had been training at the Institute at that time, Craig Roll and Nathan Gallagher, Grant Hickson. You might know that name. It's popped up on Squash Stories sometimes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, so, um, and, and obviously we coming onto the tour at that stage, uh, it was pretty awe, or you were in awe of, of what, you was, what you looked up to because we literally had five, six players uh, in the top 10 consistently in the form of Dittmar, the Martin brothers, Chris Robertson, Rodney Isles, Tristan Ancaro, um, plus others, you know, that were sort of bouncing around just outside the top 10. So Aussie squash uh, on the back of the, the great success of Jeff Hunt was, was really, you know, had sort of reached this crescendo point where it was just so strong. So it was, it was a big, there were big names to look up to and big shoes to fill, you know, coming through. Um, mm. And uh, I came in at 18 years of age, uh, managed, I played, basically played three and a half years uh, till mid-94. Then I got glandular fever and I was just sort of gotten inside the top 50 at 49. Probably felt like I was playing my best squash at, in that three and a half years, you know, sort of maturing in, in, in the way that I that I needed to. In uh, the first half of 94, uh, had a good run for a few months, got glandular fever. And then uh, obviously what happened following that was 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 I was not expecting that I, I didn't really recover from it as as most people do. I spent sort of two years in the wilderness trying to figure out why I had so much chronic fatigue problems and stuff like this. Uh, yeah, but in the end, I managed to sort of finally get through that, got back on tour in 1997, three years later, and then, you, and then you're doing the whole restart, start from the bottom of the rankings. Um, having said that, 25 years ago, I have to say, if I look at the tour today and you look at the depth um, and how strong it is, uh, I think that the path through in those days as long as you had the level and the quality, you're able to get through that difficult sort of entry stage a bit quicker, which um, perhaps made things, you know, just slightly easier. But I, I had a good run at the back end of 97, managed to quickly sort of get back, um, you know, back to sort of around 60-ish in the world after that first year. And then I played until uh, April 2004. So I played seven years pretty much back on, on, on tour the second time around. Uh, the best year or my best period was 99 till 2002. Definitely in there, I was sort of inside the top 30. Uh, got uh, to 15 in the world in April 2001. I yeah. uh, was very fortunate to be in the uh, men's, the Australian men's team in 2001 in my home city of Melbourne. And we won the world team's championship there. So I was, uh, I didn't, I was, I was number four. So I was sitting on the bench. I was uh, the water boy, but uh, I was quite happy, obviously, to, to carry the drinks. On uh, finals day, uh, with uh, Stuart Boswell, uh, David Palmer, and Paul Price, yeah. um, and I played till I four, and then unfortunately I got I got struck down by uh, fatigue once again, and, and and the second second time round it was uh, a similar thing in terms of length of time getting over it, although the the path to sort of recovery had had some different elements about it, but eventually I got over it. But by that stage it was two thousand six, and 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 yeah, with no money in my pocket basically, and having sort of exhausted all my 
all my resources trying to be a pro all the way through. Um, I probably I took the decision quite clear. Well, for me, it was pretty clear at 34 with a, with a, with a double sort of fatigue history. I wasn't going to make a second sort of comeback. And then basically since that moment, I've been working uh, the same job in in Zurich uh, in a place called Vitas Sports Centre, which which uh, in in those in Switzerland and, and those that have played uh, junior events that have come to Switzerland, they know the centre pretty well. A very big racket sports centre, indoor racket sports centre. And I've had a very uh, good run there, um, employed by a guy named Court Locker, who's been a fantastic boss to work for, and been able, been lucky enough to coach squash at all levels and and run PSA events. Um, I've had three PSA events there. I've run the Grasshopper Cup qualifying. I've had four or five exhibition events. So it's been, uh, you know, I've had, I've had sort of a, a really nice uh, mixture of managing things and and the day to day grind of just uh, of doing the doing the. The, the lessons to put the bread on the table, so to speak, you know, so. Oh, that's perfect. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I get, uh, did you, uh, have you had spent any time with uh, Dimitri uh, Steinman or, or Nicholas uh, over the years? I spent a lot of time with Dimitri. Um, he, he, he probably, he just managed to forget mentioning that when he was on the podcast with you. <laughs> but, okay. Uh, <laughs> we, we, we were talking too I'll, much I'll, about I'll, his, act, his acting I'll, career. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. No, I'll, I'll put that little dig in cause he knows it already, but uh now, I, I, Dimitri came over to Vitas uh, pretty much around the age of twelve, uh, and then we had a yeah we had a really um, a close close relationship up all the way through uh, his junior career up until nineteen twenty, and then um, you know since then he's he's obviously been exploring different channels which have eventually uh, led to him working with Rob, which ironically was definitely that was one of the things I was saying to him probably as far back as 17 or 18, I, I planted that seed in his ear and sort of said, I think Rob Owen would be a good guy for you um, going forward because Rob's name was already coming onto the map very much there with after the work he'd done for so many years with, with Joel and, and many other players in the UK. And then, and then more lately, of course, uh, Paul Cole being the, 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 the big fish that he, that he caught, so to speak, and, uh, and has done amazing things with him. So um, yeah, I'm happy to see that Dimmy is, 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 there and and he's been very fortunate that he's been able to through that connection been able to go over to the US and and get uh, some more fine tuning with uh, none other than the great Rodney Martin who I'm a, a massive fan of obviously as well. Yeah, we so are, yeah. yeah, we all are exactly. No, so Demi's on on course I think nicely at the moment, 27 uh, yeah. at his highest ranking. Um, and yeah, if you're a betting man, I, I would say you know you get decent odds still that he's going to be a top 10 player. And you'd want to take that bet, I reckon, because uh, he's, you know, I put him in the top five in the world for his, you know, his all-round strength and fitness um, and what well, he can comes bring. From uh, from a world-class athletic uh, background. Exactly. Both his parents yeah. are Olympians, right? Uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yes, exactly. I know them. I know them really well because I've 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 had, I've had a lot of contact with him over the years as well, and. Um, yeah, that, so he's yeah he's doing fantastic and, and and that's great to see being entrenched in Switzerland and then you know obviously Nikki Nikki Miller has uh, has been the, the the flag bearer for yeah. Swiss squash for so many years yeah. and yeah I'm I'm really happy to see that he's possibly had his best year um, mm. in the year where he's turned 33. Uh, he was 27 in the world rankings at the end of last year and he's finished or he's finishing the year sitting at number 13. So. Um, yeah, is that maturity uh, is that some, I mean, it's not, uh, I mean, Nikki 
we don't really I don't really know a lot about him other than you know watching him play. I've had him on I've spoken to him on the podcast. He seems like a, a really great guy. Uh, but I, I'm not sure how uh sort of we I get the the the, the sort of the, the picture that he might might have needed a bit more maturity when he was younger in order to sort of capitalize on on the obvious skill set that he has. Absolutely. He's you know, he reads the game. As good as anyone, um, his ability to, to finish the ball from some of the most extreme positions and, and, and you know, and, and I always said sort of when I saw him even at 16, 17, he just, he had that, you know, that, that eye for a shot and he was never afraid to play it, never afraid to take it on. And, and that kind of, um, those kind of people that have that kind of X factor, you, you see quite rarely, you know, and, and he had that already uh, in his late teens, you know. Um, yeah, I mean, perhaps, you know, there's, there's definitely moments throughout the last sort of 12, 15 years where uh, looking at some of the, you know, the way that his he's, he's seasons have gone and his squash has gone, that you feel that if he had have been perhaps more disciplined and more on it and more constant, that those results we're seeing now perhaps would have been uh, more regular, you know, and, and he would have reached those heights uh Already, one could argue that perhaps, but uh, he's also, you know, he's had he's had a few niggles along the way, and uh, and, and sort of had to deal with that. Um, I know, sort of, especially in the in the groin area, he's always had sort of issues there that have hampered him and plagued him a little bit, and uh, and yeah. I think that that that's been obvious when those things are happening too with his movement in and out of the front corners. You can see that that something's not quite right, uh, but. Uh, yeah, it's at the end of the day, I suppose it's, you know, the, the harsh critic might say it's just down to the all-round professionalism that one one has from top to bottom, from A to Z, you know. So uh, I think he implemented a few changes at the start of this year in the way that he generally wants to control his lifestyle. And go, you mentioned about just going to get in a bed a bit earlier as you're getting older. I think that he's yeah, yeah. sort of tidied some simple <laughs> basic things up, the diet, um, and mm. his training habits have just been more consistent. And when Nicky Miller's on the court, feeling good, hitting the ball, he's he's certainly getting a lot of good, what I call very good practice in, and that's and that's uh, not yeah. not a good sign for the other players. Yeah, well, yeah, I mean the shots that he can play. I mean that 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 shot that he hit behind his his back there. I mean, yeah, it's, that's you know, another special. Got to yeah. be, yeah. Not everyone's going to be doing that on the tour, so uh, only no. Yeah. I've seen him uh, in the gym. You know, one of his favorite things, you know, in terms of training, and he and he definitely took a leaf out of the the Roger Federer book. Roger Federer was one of the best you've ever seen. If you watch some of the videos where he he trained with this guy Paganini, who who did all of these sort of coordinative warm up drills, uh, where he had to he had multiple balls that he had to deal with, sort of, and use his peripheral vision to. to to, to sort of manage all of the things going on and then he might even be placed on a on an uneven surface. Nicky has always been very, very good at that kind of stuff. So okay. if you combine that, that coordinative skill with his natural, obviously his natural feel on the ball as well, you've got a you've got a, a great all-round package for ball striking at the end of the day. Brilliant. Brilliant. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, I I, I want to talk a little bit about the uh, the squash that's going on. We could we could talk about Swiss squash all day. I, I think. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, Swiss squash is no Swiss squash is in a really good spot right now. There's hmm. there's there's a lot going uh, there's a lot going on underneath. I just actually went down to the Swiss Junior Open. Uh, just a quick little side story, and, and and a guy that I've been working with for a long time, David Burnett, who went to the World Juniors, lost uh, round of thirty two. So that that's not a name that nobody will really know, but He's, he's going along nicely and, and he won the Swiss Junior Open today. The World okay. Junior champ 
uh, Rowan Damming. He lost in the semi-finals to a guy from Qatar called, uh, named Yusuf Farag. So, wow. uh, yeah, an uh, uh, interesting, interesting little upset there. Shares. Yeah, I mean, Farag has uh, – I've seen him down in Vitas because the Qatari uh, squad from Aspire under the, the leadership of Joey Kemp and, uh, and Francesco Buzzi, they came and actually stayed for a week training in the centre where I'm coaching. So I've seen them there every day. And, and, and this guy, Farag, he's, he's, he, he can play. Like, he's, he's good. And he beat Damming in the semis. And then Burnett, the guy from Switzerland, who's 17 years old, he beat uh, Farag in the final. So, um, oh. yeah, we've, yeah there's, there's, a lot, there's a lot of sort of uh, strong base coming through. Yannick Wilhelmi, you, you might know as well. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, um, we're in a good spot at the moment in, in Swiss men's squash. Yannick's a, a buddy of uh, Dimitri's, I think. Exactly, but, yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. Got to the Swiss uh, national final, I believe. Yeah, yeah exactly, yeah. He's, he's basically number, he's solid number three at the moment behind Dimi and, uh, and Nikki. Right on, right on. Well, great. Well, um, let, let's take a look at the, just a couple of things uh, before we get to, to Hong Kong. I recently just had... Uh, just to, to get a bit more backstory on you, I just had uh, Yen Yao on the podcast and uh, the Malaysian Open, it just, you know, was just played. Uh, and there was a hiatus in the uh, the Open from 95 to about <laughs> 2000, I think. Then when the, the Open reemerged, um, I think uh, the, the finalists of the, the, the return uh, of that Open were none other than uh, Ong Bang Hee, of course. A world junior uh, champion, a former top 10, and yourself. Uh, uh, so, so I was like, wow, that, that, that's pretty cool. So, so, Johnny, what happened there? You got to the final of that one, and uh, you, you won the first game, I, I noticed, and uh, close games after that. So decent result there. Yeah, that was, that was exactly that. My best sort of period was definitely sort of uh, beginning of 2000 through till 2002, and that was December in 2000. And... Interestingly, I, I got over there and uh, won the first round, uh, three love, and then I beat Stephen Meads in the quarters, three love. Went back to the hotel that night, uh, started feeling really off at about maybe eleven o'clock at night. Food poisoning just it was was the was the problem, and it just yeah. absolutely wiped me out for about 12, 13 hours. And I was literally on the phone. I was I was on the phone with the organizer at one in the afternoon, still in bed, uh, playing at about six. And I said, uh, I don't think it's going to happen. You know, I don't think I can make it, mate. I'm, I'm just, I'm completely flushed out. I've not moved. And he said, give it another couple of hours and you never know, you know. <laughs> I gave it, I gave it another couple of hours. By that stage, I was already up and about and I was moving. And then you sort of start tinkering with the idea. Could I, can I actually get on there? And if I get on there, am I going to be able to move? And, and you know, I ended up somehow, yeah, I got, I went down there and I felt semi all right. And by the time I got into the game, uh, I actually played, Played pretty decent, and uh, I beat Oli Tuman in the semis. He probably doesn't want to know about that right now, but definitely wasn't his best day, that's for sure. But uh, I managed just to find a way to get through, and, and then and then went on, on to the final and played Bing in the final. And uh, it was a seventeen sixteen in that first game, uh, uh, probably about thirty five minutes, and uh, okay. at the old Jalan Jalan Duta Centre, which is not the one they're playing the Malaysian Open at. That was the old hardcore centre. You're right. uh, just the normal glass back courts and very, very humid and hot. So I was, I was, yeah, I was pretty drained. I mean, you must one. have been, you must have been extremely fit, anyways, right? I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, there's, there's always, there's been the stories uh, that have floated around sometimes about about me in the four hundreds and, and all that kind of stuff. I was always a, 
a, a pretty decent runner. Um, if, you know, doing court courties, court sprints on, on court, I was very strong at that kind of stuff. So yeah. I had a good, uh, yeah, I had a good um, engine to, to repeat that, that sort of high intensity speed for long periods of time, definitely. Joey likes to allude to that a uh, uh, fair bit yeah. on squash TV there, uh, but yeah, that that's fantastic. So, uh, but today was a big day at the uh, the HK uh, Open and uh, came to a conclusion. Obviously, uh, as you know, Mustafa uh, Asal and Hanya El Hamami uh, emerged victorious. Two thrillers, uh, three two thrillers. And I think these two players probably are, in terms of the pundits, anyways. The uh, two that are could be most likely to maybe get a stranglehold on number one, which is kind of a difficult thing to do, I think, these days. But um, to get a stranglehold on the position and maybe hold on to it for a bit. But uh, anyways, the ladies final was back and forth. Uh, uh, but I always had a feeling that uh, that Hanya was going to win that uh, at some eventually. Uh, but what was your take on on it, uh, Johnny? Uh, I'm. Lisa, Lisa Aiken, who, who was doing a good, really good job with, with Joey there again today, and, and she said that uh, that was the best women's squash match she's ever seen, which is a pretty yeah. big statement, obviously. She's, yeah, seen few, uh, she's in her early 30s. Um, yeah. But, yeah, I mean, gee whiz, you, 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 you know, in the last 20 years, she's, she, she certainly has got a case, you know, like what was going on there. The types of rallies that where it was really all court movement, all four corners being utilised with incredible sort of efforts of defence. You had Hania diving all over the court like she does um, in the most desperate of situations and Shabini with the super clinical finishing. But she's never faced anybody in her career, I don't think, that is able to just continuously pick up as much ball as what Hania Alamami can. And then the, the way that Hania Alamami has this incredible sort of, you know, squash IQ, the ability to sort of just counter-attack her with some of these little cross-court turns and things like that um, and, and the repeat speed that she brings. So, her, I mean, Hella Mammy winning today, her record, just to throw a few stats at you because you know that I love the stats as well, <laughs> she's got a 4-2 record with El Shabini this year. Just yeah. sort of pointing towards what you just said about her you know, having that star next to her name about possibly being number one over the course of the next 12 months. She's got a 4-2 record against Gohar as well this year in 2022, right. although she's parked at number three. So just it's something to think about. Um, of those two losses that she had to El Shabini and Gohar, uh, one one of those losses was to each of them at the World Tour Finals in the best of three. Right. So her, her ability to continuously back up, and, and she's beaten those two to win three big events, semi-finals and final this year and all of them were like 70 80 minute matches each time i mean it's just absolutely incredible at the back end back end of an event her ability physically and mentally to just hold up it's yeah it's i think incredible. mentally mentally yeah. is incredible. uh what i what i, I was going to just sort of juxtapose her and, and diego because what happened to diego seems to happen to him a fair bit he got down on himself and when things started to blow up a little bit and he got angry mm-hmm. That went it went the other way, but with with Hanya, she when she gets angry, it it actually she plays better. It seems. Yeah, hundred percent. She uh, yeah, she it, she keeps her cool in every situation. You know, she's as Shabini does in in her mm-hmm. own sort of uh, you know, let's say warrior princess way as well. Yeah, yeah. And then uh, and then you've got uh, Goha, 
who's who's much more probably you know internal in in, in her in her in their thoughts yeah. and the way that she carries herself through the court, uh, and she's you know she puts on that game face and it never really changes. But those three, um, are, yeah, I mean, if you look at the you know, one only needs to go and look at the rankings, look at the averages. I mean, they have just absolutely elevated themselves away from the rest. Yeah, and. Goha with her consistency, um, she's even got a still a bit of a, a gap on on uh, El Shabini and and, and Alamami. But Alamami will have will have certainly, yeah, by beating Goha in the semis and then winning today, she will close that gap somewhat as we sort of close out the year. So, but those three are just they're like an unstoppable force at the moment. It's absolutely incredible, and they keep you know, as we said, they're rolling what one arguably could say is the best level of women's squash we've ever seen, um, and that's been in the making for the last. 10 years because these girls were so good, so young and the, it's at the back end of a, of a 20 year program in, in, in Egypt, which you're going to no doubt start talking about as well with, with that, you know, just these incredible uh, numbers that Egypt, the squash pool that they have in Cairo is so big and just continues yeah. to keep be re, it's being resupplied all the time. And if anybody gets the idea that the Egyptian dynasty might be slowly coming to a close, I think they need to think again, because I don't think it is. No, I mean, I think like we were talking about, uh, I mean, before we started the podcast, I had Kareem Darwish on and he was saying, oh, you know, he, I've got this junior tournament going on uh, right now, 900 juniors. Yeah. Yeah. And the the tournament, a week long tournament. Uh, Incredible. I've never heard of 900 in any squash tournament ever before i've never heard of <laughs> that many that many in, a, in an event maybe may, no i don't think i don't that think was, I, in melbourne when i in in the 80s early 80s when i grew up i mean you know we had um tournaments with uh yeah definitely with with 350 400 players as well yeah. but back in when i when i did the first black ball that i went to in 2018 just on the side courts every day there was you know five six seven kids all of a, obviously a very high level doing three quarters or they're all on the same court because that was the only, that, you know, they were quite sort of narrowed down due to the fact that the, the the pros were playing there and they were just on there for two hours playing three quarter court if necessary. They were doing whatever they had to do to keep, you know, just to, 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 to keep drilling, to keep uh, enhancing their games and, and, and furthering their squash. And, um, and that attitude, um, gee, I mean, that's going to be, it's going to be hard to compete with, you know, the, yeah. the Europeans, we, I said European squash is going along really well. Um, the, the, the junior Grand Prix circuit is very competitive. There's no doubt about that. And the spread, the, the, you know, the way that we see the Czech Republic and um, Germany sort of will, I think, now with, with Simon Rosner coming into the game, and, and he was at that Swiss junior right, by the way, that I was just uh, at oh, on the weekend. Yeah. Rosner's influence in trying to um, direct uh, junior squash in the southern part of Germany will, will be a very positive thing. And Europe in general, I, I, I saw players from Slovenia, from Croatia. This we haven't seen before. This is the first time, and, and they're getting better and better. So the, the competition in Europe's hotting up, mm. but it's still a long way off. It's still a long, long way off. One thing that struck me as well uh, with Hong Kong anyways was all the sheer number of juniors that were watching the matches. It was almost, it was almost like when you'd watch a match uh, on squash TV in Egypt, you'd hear all the kids in the back, uh, you know, shouting for, you know, their favorite players. Same thing uh, in Hong Kong. They were, yeah, they were everywhere. Yeah. They were everywhere. Yeah, no, Asia has been, been purring along for a long time as well with their own um, sort of inter-country 
uh, squash that's been going on, let's say, in particular between Hong Kong and uh, and Malaysia. And I think that that, yeah, that's going to keep perpetuating itself and the systems are are really well placed over there. And then when you see a guy like Quan Lau coming into the last 16 and taking the first game off Cole, it yeah, just yeah. it shows that it's 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 also very healthy there. There's no doubt about that. Definitely. Uh, now the men's final went the way uh, way I thought it would in terms of the the squash overall, and it was closely contested. It was great squash, uh, as you guys like to say, a bit of argy bargy, uh, <laughs> a little bit of controversy. Asal didn't look like he really got his teeth into it uh, until like the fourth game. He was like smiling, and you know he was. Walk, it was almost like a walk in the park, but he he was losing. He he'd lost the first few games, uh, and then then the explosive movement came, and then he started chasing everything down, hitting things with ferocity, trying to get to every ball, and that that tends to be when things start to hot up and things start to get a bit controversial because it's just so explosive his movement, and uh, it seems to be the case uh, with a lot of his matches when they get close that that's tends to be what happens. So uh, you, uh, I know you you saw most of the final, Johnny. So what, what did you think of what you saw? Yeah, I mean, um, I'll start with, I mean, let's start with the back end of the third. And if you take your mind back to Asal winning the US Open, which was his, you know, that that really, that big first platinum event that everybody kind of been waiting for. And then he, he, went, he won that US Open. He defended match balls against Moman in the semis, came from two love back, to win that match, beat Elias in the final, also 3-2. Um, we, again, you see today that he's two love down, getting tidied up by a guy who's now cemented himself in the top five and is definitely going to be pushing for semifinals and finals and winning titles as well all the time. We, we, we've seen that that coming together now of the, all of the, the, the talents of Diego Elias are starting to, to ripen in the perfect way. So... Just incidentally, I said uh, earlier this week, he, I mean, he's just playing his squash is absolutely amazing. And he's a guy that you, you could watch play all day. Just, yeah, the, yeah. just in terms of, you know, what he does with the ball and how he moves around the court. Uh, there's no one else like him, I think. Yeah, defensively, he's, he's, because he's so smooth with his movement and the way he connects movement to striking, uh, he's got an unbelievable ability with his wrist to get himself out of difficult situations and just, with very little backswing, he just sort of uses the forearm and just, you know, carves the ball with the wrist and, and just can always find that perfect angle. And then he can add that snap, which no doubt your man Jonathan Power has had a, had a big influence on him. The, 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 that late wrist snap just can... There's a lot of there. Oh, he just, he can surprise from the most difficult positions and, and twist the ball across opponents. And, and, and when he's able to back, when he's covering movements so cat-like and so quick, very difficult to play. The only sort of thing which is, is obviously getting better and there's been a slight criticism of is that he, you know, against the very top guys, when he goes in short and when he's attacking, needs that needs to keep that sharpness on the ball and needs to sort of be able to accelerate now and again just to keep them honest as well. We're, you know, talking about Mustafa Asal, El Shabagi, Paul Cole um, uh, and, and Farag as well. So... He's doing that better and better, and that's I think we've seen. Uh, that's why he's he's cementing himself in the top five. But getting back to what you said, Asal's ability under the most unbelievable duress, match ball down, that rally. I mean, that that it says it all for me. That rally at nine ten was an absolute screamer. He's yeah. just parked behind Elias. He carves it into the. He plays a backhand over uh, cross court nick, 
turns around and he's got a smile on his face. And that same sort of smile he had when things were, as, as you said, getting a bit sort of heated, a bit of hustle and bustle in the fifth game, when he had the lead 6-2, he had, it was almost like he had the same demeanour, you know. So his ability to sort of, through all of that, anything that's going on, he seems to be able to have a very, very cool mindset. And, and, and that, you know, that, <laughs> that makes him the ultimate weapon when, he's, when all the rest of his game is sort of coming together as well. Um, but yeah, I mean, it was a tough, again, it was a, a, a tough job for the, for the refs. Obviously, Elias definitely uh, fell off the horse in game five. He fell into that uh, looking for something in a sales movement going on all the time. And again, he got himself so riled and so uh, affected by it that he was looking for things that, to be honest, I felt that just weren't there, you know, and uh, he, yeah, he needs to get on top of that because I don't, and I'm sure you don't think either, I don't think Mustafa Asal is going to play worse in those situations or back down. So if you're sort of standing around sort of moaning and and asking for a bit of help from the refs, the bottom line is just not going to help him. You know, it's definitely uh, not going to help him. Mustafa embraces that kind of stuff, doesn't he? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, You know, uh, but uh, just heading in just before the end of the fourth game, I'm sure you saw, uh, well, there were a couple of incidents. uh, The one at the end of the fourth where uh, Mazzarella or or, or where Diego came storming off the court uh, saying that his ball was was up. Uh, That was on uh, game ball. And uh, Mazzarella wouldn't uh, wouldn't look at the video and stuff was sitting in the chair as if the game were over. That kind of bled into the next game, I think, uh, perhaps for for Diego. And he's one of these guys who sort of I think he he lets things fester a bit too much. And that that could be uh, one of his uh, something that I think he needs to work on. Is that maybe is that something that you saw as well? Oh, 100 percent. It was it was a very harsh call. Uh, I look I looked at it over and over on my big screen at home, and it, and it, in the end, I have to say my interpretation was uh, as was the commentators that the ball did sneak above the the ten. Mm. To be fair to John Massarella, um, he made the call, and as far as I could tell, which is usually the case, there was communication going on with the video ref, and yeah. I would be, I would be led to believe that the video ref was of the same opinion. But for some reason, they thought that it just took the top of the ten. Um, yeah, I mean, what's the answer to that? Tough, tough thing, isn't it? Because they make their call based on what they see. Uh, in the end, one hopes that the technology that they have in other sports uh, will take care of that one day, you know, because it's just for the human eye to make those decisions and, and, and adjudicate uh, those sort of situations. It's very, very tough. But, yeah, I mean, of course you could argue that the, 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 best, the best scenario or the, the minimum scenario out of that would have been that there the, the, the had been a let played at least uh, for Diego. But well, there, it's there not an excuse, though, that Diego... There was just, a situation earlier, uh, I think it was in the previous match against Paul Cole, where, where uh, Asal, and I didn't see it, but Asal hit the ball, and, and it was kind of, the ball was kind of low to the ground, and it looked like he had won the point. And then uh, Cole said, no, 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 it, hit, it bounced off the floor and then hit the front wall. He was adamant that no one saw it. Then they, the referee looked at the video, and there it was. It hit the floor. And went and hit the front wall. So why? I mean, that was a perfect example of uh, you know where you know a player is adamant. Just take a look at the the video and show everybody. It 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 uh, the proof was there uh, the day before. So I'm yeah, not, absolutely. Yeah, 
why they wouldn't have done that again uh, in this situation. But yeah, I'm sure that that's going to be the feedback, no doubt, from for, yeah to to John and and the video ref on that on that particular match. It should have been looked at. There's no doubt about that. You know, because uh, it was too important. It was too big, nine ten um, game ball for us all. Um, and yeah, that's it's yeah. There's there are areas for you know. I mean, obviously, as a commentator, I want to go too. But I mean, I I'm, yeah. I'm on the I'm in the hot seat, sort of adjudicating those things and having to commentate on them uh, quite often. Um, and it's uh, it's always easier from the armchair in, in in retrospect to sort of sit back and say they should have done this and they should have done that. Um, but yeah, there, there needs to be some kind of. Uh, yeah, there needs to be some kind of system in place where, where we get to, especially when we get to game balls and tie breaks, I think that one anyway should be sort of leaning that way anyway more, you know, to sort of say we're, we're definitely going to have a look at this to, to make sure. Yeah, they tend to do that. They do that well. Like they, there were a couple of situations where I think uh, Mazzarella went to the video referee instead of making the decision himself. Yeah. There were a few of those at the end of the match, which it, to me that makes a lot of sense to go that way. But uh Anyways, I think Diego, at the end of the day, he's got to play those points like a guy like James Wilstrup or Peter Nickel or, you know, someone who uh, even uh, even uh, Mustafa. Mustafa, he'll he'll chirp at the ref, but then he tends to get on and play uh, and, and and play the, the match. I think if Diego can overcome, you know, these situations where he gets bogged down, uh, I think his squash will improve and, and he, he could uh, – he, he, I mean, he can reach number one if he can manage uh, to overcome these mental lapses uh, like this. Yeah, no, absolutely. He needs to be able to put things behind him better. And, and, and like you say, it just manifests too quickly with him. And then he, he does carry it like you can see, like it's almost like baggage on his shoulders. We saw that straight away in the fifth game that yeah. what had happened at the end of the fourth was dictating his attitude and the way he was and the way he was he was he was carrying himself around the court. Yeah. Mustafa doesn't do that, um, and the great like you started mentioning about the great players of the past, none of them did that either. You know, so yeah. if you want to be the, one of the greatest, and certainly I think Mustafa's got his hand up, sort of saying that's that's who he wants to be. Yeah. You have to be able to just wipe and delete and just move forward. And, and Diego's definitely uh, when in, in comparison to. Muhammad as well. You know, I mean, Muhammad's obviously he's had he's had that a couple of anomaly situations, perhaps where where he also was was maybe found guilty of that. El Guna being the most obvious one. Yeah. But for the be- yeah for the better part of his career, to be fair to him, he's 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 moved on from situations and and uh, and you know stamped himself as the premier player over the last uh, t- you know ten years or so. Yeah, for sure. Uh, there was another uh, another in- well, not incident, but it, it came up a few times during the match. Uh, your partner in crime, uh, Joey, had mentioned that uh, there were there were a few traffic problems in the backhand back backhand corner where where uh, Mustafa was trying to get to a ball, and it looked like he he was using his left hand to get to a ball, and it looked to me, anyways, it looked like he he was just kind of pushing uh, Diego to get through. But I think uh, what Joey was saying was he was using his left hand to, I don't know, to maybe, uh, I wasn't quite sure, but maybe to stop Diego from moving. So yeah. It looked yeah. like there was interference. But to me, it looked like, because he was, uh, Diego was off to the left, to the left of Mustafa. So uh, it looked like to me he was pushing him a little bit to show that he could get to the ball. To try to get there. Now, I'm not sure what you, you obviously, you, you've seen this a few times, and maybe you and Joey have talked about the left hand. And I, and I know what he means by using the hand to block, to stop a guy from, 
from clearing or to make it look like there's interference. But uh, what's your take on, on uh, what you saw there today? No, I think this this is a this is a very important point, and and this is where right at the top of the game, um, in, in and in terms of right at the top of refereeing, which which puts uh, no doubt my my other fellow mate who's commentating uh, still and, and doing doing a great job as well, Lee Drew, but he's in charge of the refereeing, so he's got this situation for the first. I think it's the first time in the game that we've seen, due to obviously this scenario developing where players are definitely getting much more heavily punished for loose play on the backhand, that there's this natural growth that's happened where players obviously with that incentive of if a guy hits it a bit loose, if I can slightly trap him as I go through, the chances of me getting a stroke have increased dramatically as, you know, compared to perhaps 10, 15, 20 years ago. And certainly my day, you know, because you just didn't get rewarded that as much in those situations with I'll say a quick stroke as what you do today, and yeah, yeah. with the t- with the TV obviously highlighting these things, and then video reviews showing it very clearly. There's definitely uh, more punishment being dished out for loose play in the backhand. You hit a heavy volley drop, you hit a heavy drive, and it's a meter out from the wall, and you slightly move back to the tee, and you're not fo- you're not able to get out of there. It's that I think that the the left hand in the back thing is sort of on the back of that developing, okay? Right, right. But as, you, as, as, as Joey correctly points out, at some point there needs to be a line drawn with if the first, you know, and I'm, and I'm certainly not pointing the finger at Mustafa Sal because you, we can go through so many matches over the last few years where this has been going on, Jerry, that players, the first reaction is as soon as they sniff that the ball's a bit loose, the hand is going in the back, either to trap them a little bit or because they feel like they want to show if I go directly you know, if I right angle towards the sidewall here, I could take it there and then sort of trying to either, you know, con the ref a little bit to sort of say, I want a, I want a stroke. But at the very minimum, they feel the, the worst thing that could happen is they're going to get a let, you know? Right. So something needs to be done about the left hand in the back, I think, to be honest, because I think players need to be, I think there needs to be some kind of uh, mandate from from right from the top, from refereeing, uh, where if if players are quickly putting the left hand in the back when they're, when they're looking to sort of go to the ball, on the, on, especially on that left-hand side, on the backhand side, or I'll say the left side of the court, that it's, it's not really a natural thing when you think about it. If I prepare to play a backhand, normally, you know, most players will have their left hand sort of placed out, even under the playing arm. So yeah. it doesn't really make sense that the left hand would be up and then in the back of the opponent. That's sort of an unnatural position for me. So it's pretty clear. If we, if you think about it like that, that, that they're trying to to milk or they're trying to sort of create a situation that is that. not a yeah. natural way of playing the ball, you know. Yeah. And then what referees probably need to will need to you know need to learn that they need to have, they need to dish out a warning if they're seeing it very early. Don't put the left hand in the back when you're going to the ball. Just move naturally to the ball. And yeah, I mean, if the play hits it loose and you're sort of going through, it's still going to be the same situation if they hit it loose and you're quickly onto it, and you could take it in, you know. I'll say one step across towards that left-hand wall, then it'll still be a stroke anyway. You don't need to put the left hand in the back to create this, you know, for it to be a stroke situation, in my opinion, you know. Um, and probably, it, 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 yeah, because another match that comes to mind where, to be honest, where I, definitely there was too much of that going on was the Farris suzuki paul Cole match, which I was commentating at the uh, Grasshopper Cup, um, where, you know, there was there was a bit of commentary flying around that, that obviously Farris sort of managed to, 
milk a few situations, I think, in his favour where there was clearly the left hand was 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 in the back of Cole and, and not letting Cole get out, even when his ball perhaps was not even that loose either. It was actually yeah. quite tight to the wall, you know. Yeah, um, uh, yeah so something there's definitely, I mean, it, it, I don't think that the, the, the refing uh, body, the, the WSO, can allow that this could just continues on being unnoticed and, and, and not being sort of, you know, spotted and then that even warnings are handed out to players that you don't need to put the left hand in the back. Just move naturally and it, it won't affect the, I don't think it should affect the decision-making too much uh, in terms of players still know that they cannot take on shots around the middle of the court and be inaccurate and get away with it on the backhand side. It's, it's, the, it's the classic sort of area where you're going to get uh, a stroke against you if, you, if you're not accurate and you're, and you're playing too loose there. Yeah, uh, I think that's a good point, uh, Johnny. And uh, one other thing, just in terms of the officiating, and John Mazzarell, I thought, had pretty good control in the match. It was almost entertaining the way he was dealing with, with both players. And it sort of got me to thinking, and, and I talk about this with a lot of my squash uh, buddies and the keyboard warriors out there. Uh, we talk, you know, you look at a game like like rugby, and uh, how respectful the players are to the officials and the way the official sort of, you know, he would, if, if there's any talk back, you, you, you get it right away, right. From, from the official. And, and that sort of, I get, I get that impression that Mazzarella is trying to sort of create that kind of uh, environment there. I'm not sure, you know, uh, some of the, the onlookers might not appreciate it. I think he got a took a bit of flack for the the way he was talking to the players afterwards. But I think, you know, there's some merit to what he's trying to do. A hundred percent. Johnny Massarella is the master of that. The, the Don of Don, Doncaster, as uh, Johnny always says. And uh, <laughs> yeah. he, his ability to be in that hot seat, yet recognise in terms of just human emotions and behavioural things that are going on, he's got a very good feel for really getting on top of, of potential sort of flare-ups and, mm. and and putting out those spot fires very quickly by raising the tone of his voice. Now, as you said, there are there are some people out there that don't like it and sometimes no doubt he's probably, you know, he's, he's gone too far. But um, if we can train referees to, to – that's going to be the difficult thing, is it? Because John Massarella is a pretty unique fella as well, if you know him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, he's very, very relaxed daytimes, uh, you know, during events. He's, you know, he's – He's got uh, the skin of, an, of a crocodile from the Northern Territory, um, <laughs> being bathing in the sun for, for six, seven hours at a time. So, uh, and then he, he has this, in, you know, raw ability to be thrown into that hot seat and just feel absolutely at home and, and have no problem sort of barking out orders, almost like a policeman um, to the players in the court, but uh, control of the game. The interesting thing, I mean, you make the comparison with rugby, but rugby has the culture the referees to be in that position rather than they themselves imposing their personalities, I would say, like John Massarella hasn't done. You know, he's done that over, over a long period of time and, and, and created his own sort of figure out of that, whereas the rugby culture just doesn't allow it, you know. So we need a bit of both. We need, we need strong referees with, with that, that Johnny Maz um, strong personality and ability to, to recognise when to be when to raise the tone, when to be harsher with the tone and, and when not to be, when to be a bit jovial as well, which he does also very well. Yeah, it's yeah, a bit of a giggle sometimes, well. yeah? Yeah. You know, I think, and it's very hard to teach. But culturally, 
um, that the referees are become a little bit more untouchable. I think that there certainly needs to be more of that in, in, brought into the game. And that's, but that's a rules thing. That's got nothing to do with uh, being John Massarella, you know. Yeah, I think. Uh, I mean, what I from what I could see today, uh, Diego didn't take it as well as uh, Mustafa. Mustafa seems to have a some sort of decent relationship, or he he respects uh, Mazzarella for. I don't know. Maybe they had maybe Mazzarella and he had words or something in the past during Mustafa's sort of darker period there there uh, a little while ago. Maybe he spoke with Mazzarella about what he had to do to clean things up. But I didn't get the the impression that Diego appreciated uh, any of the the talk back from from Mazzarella at all. No, but I think that Diego's you know it's not it's not necessarily a a personal thing with John Mazzarella. Diego, as, as you mentioned, you know we've seen other situations where Diego has spiraled into this sort of uh, um, you know mentally just basically the wheels falling off and then not being able to focus on executing that incredible game style that he has. Yeah. And letting certain situations, decisions or non-decisions affect the way he's going to play. And uh, uh, Mustafa has, has been quite, you know, he's vocalised that and sort of said he actually likes the fact that, that John Massarella is almost, you know, playing the school principal role. And mm. when his knuckles need a bit of a, you know, a bit of a smack on the hands with the ruler, that he's actually okay with that. And it almost yeah. puts him in line type thing. And keeps him focused on the job to embracing to do what he's got uh, to do. being the class clown. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's a it is it is a very um, yeah it's it's quite a, a, a unique uh, two way relationship thing there. The way that that, that Mazzarella's handling it, but the fact that that, that as Mustafa's you know he's almost come out and said that Mazzarella's my favourite referee, even though he knows that Mazzarella could be very very tough on him in certain situations. Mm. He'd rather have him there than anybody else there. Yeah, for sure. Uh, yeah, really good stuff there, Johnny. Uh, now, uh, the season, uh, the, uh, we've, re- we've reached the end of uh, the first half of the season. And um, uh, let's just take a, a little bit of a recap here. So, so in terms of the women, Gohar, still number one and has been uh, for the last little while. Hamami and Sherbini are both breathing down her neck. So it looks to me, uh, it seems to me anyways, that, that Hanya looks the strongest of, of the three and uh, she seems to have a bit of a mental edge over over Gohar, and uh, uh, I would I uh, I can just see her uh, by the end of the season maybe taking over uh, the number one ra- ranking. Uh, I'm just prognosticating here, but uh, do you see that as well? Uh, I, I just sort of slightly counter that a little bit with uh, that. Yeah, Hany Rathamami is is. Um, absolutely on a mission and there's only one thing on, on her mind is to get from three to one and she doesn't care whether it's Noriel Shabini, arguably the greatest player in, in women's squash or on the way to be perhaps becoming that. She's got her sights set and, and the evidence that we've, we've seen with those results and those stats, you can see she's not intimidated, not in awe uh, at all of either Goha or El Shabini. But the only thing I would say is that those the court in Hong Kong, and I, I mean, I, we, we I was not there, but just judging from what Joey and Lisa were saying, there, it was warmish conditions in there. Uh, in Alguna, it was super hot outside, obviously, you know, where, where she where she won that tournament and she beat the both of them there as well to win that. Uh, the Egyptian Open pyramids, very hot. So in these conditions, they're definitely going to be better for El Hamami, where it's going to be harder for El Shabini to impose her short game upon her. It's going to be harder for Goha with those sort of, you know, those trademark kills that she likes to play. 
that they're not coming back a little bit further. And then you get into the more colder environments and then perhaps those two are going to have a little bit more of an edge over Hell and Mammy where they can play some periods through games where shorter, sharper rallies and that'll challenge Alamami with her defences a bit more. So, um, yeah, it's not as it's not just sort of a, a clear-cut thing, but um, Alamami's, yeah, her mental strength and her attitude suggests to me that it's going to be hard for the other two to stop her from eventually getting to number one um, as to when that is, is in the stars a little bit at the moment. But uh, yeah. what, yeah, I, I'm just sort of sitting back in the chair here sort of saying, gee whiz, how lucky are we that we're going to see this unfold over, over the course that's, of the next few years? That's exciting. You've got, you got, you got three who are absolutely hell-bent on beating the other two, you know? Yeah. Um, what I did part- notice in the semifinal with Gohar and, uh, and Hamami, they, they, it wasn't as frosty an ending as it had been uh, previously. I mean, they, they yeah. sort of embraced there at the end. Uh, a couple of the matches before that, especially uh, – uh, the the one where where uh, Gohar just nailed her with the ball. Uh, there there were a couple of incidents there last year where uh, where yeah, it was a bit of a frosty uh, ending to their mass matches, but this one they seemed to be okay. Oh uh, yeah, it was it was definitely fought in the same uh, hard vein that they're, they're, they're all their matches have been fought in, um, and yeah, there was a cheeky little sort of. Uh, Shot in the back of uh, Gohar, if you I don't know if you saw it from Elmay, which is yeah, yeah. not the, not the first time. I mean, she's called the leopard, but she could also be called the fox, in my opinion, because she's quite cunning <laughs> at times as well. Yeah, but, yeah. yeah. But uh, yeah, look, I mean, yeah, there's, there's certainly not going to be any love lost, but it's 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 probably yeah, it's it's something that I would like to think that the players take on board and sort of realise that they do have at the end of games and in after match interviews for the media and all these sort of purposes. They've got a role to play, so it's important that they can just sort of rise above all of that, what's happened, no matter how hard it's been and how tough it's been fought, um, and just sort of say, you've got to shake hands. Oh, and it was just the way I was taught as well um, in, in, in Oz. I remember one, one time going to a junior clinic and we had, a, we, we had like a half an hour chat session with a guy, and the end of it was all based on how you have to shake hands and look the other person in the eye and say, if, you, if, you, if you're lost... Too good, well played, and if you if you if you won, great game. That was a hard battle, thanks. And it was all about like learning that culture, you know. And it's important in this very uh, difficult, tricky time of the of the age that we live in, where perhaps that's not at the forefront of society. Um, that the leaders of our game that they they take that. I would hope that they take that on board a little bit, and that's that's a better ending to that hard fought battle, like you said. That they sort of look at each other, they give each other a pat on the back, and say, "Yeah, it was it was brutal out there, but the best player won on the day." Yeah, I think one of the greatest uh, non-handshakes uh, was the Hong Kong Open prior to when JP won his first. He lost to Rodney Rodney Isles in, I think it was the semi, might have been the semi-final of, of that. <laughs> and uh, I don't know if you remember that match, but uh, Power, I think Power was thinking, that, you know, this is my year, I'm going to win this one. Yeah. <laughs> and and uh, Rodney... Just an amazing player. He he was a great shot maker too. He could just yeah, yeah. You know, such a great front court game and, and a lot of deception uh, in his game. And he and he, and he beat Jonathan uh, pretty handily that day. And Johnny just Ronnie stuck his hand out, and Johnny just walked right past him and out the door. He could have almost done that one, you know. Yeah, yeah. The thumb yeah, on the yeah, nose yeah. type thing. Yeah. No, Jonathan. <laughs> I don't was think Johnny. Uh, I don't think JP attended that handshake session. You're no, to. he was he was guilty of being a sore loser, no doubt, in the, in some of the early years there until uh, until he sort of 
you know, in the later years, I mean, you know, jo- Jonathan retired obviously uh, in 2006, but but he was, I mean, he was world number one. He was at the top. Yeah, he was at the peak yeah. of his, pardon the pun, his powers. You know, so. Um, but one thing, it's interesting you mentioned that because certainly I would hope that that power had a lot of those brutally physical matches and just take the matches with Palmer, for example, where there was a lot of activity going on. But I tell you what, I never saw power do what Elias has been, been guilty of, what we've just been spo- speaking about, where things perhaps weren't going his way or a decision didn't go his way to lose a game. It still didn't affect the way he, he carried himself heading into a fifth game. Like It was still fought all the way to the end. Well, he could be out there shouting at the referee and then go- then come back on the court and win six points in a row or something. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. So, yeah, he needs to get stuck into his – well, I know he's working with uh, El Hindi now, but there's still definitely a connection with Pau. It would be good, uh, Jonathan, that would I would say to him if he would be listening. T- teach him a little bit about how you used to do that, yeah. how you used to – no matter what, all of the disruption going on and all of the, the distortion, the ability to hone in and just sort of get, get on to the next point and, and, yeah. and keep executing. Yeah, definitely. They they know that uh, probably they, they have to try to deal with that. But uh, just in terms of the, the ladies, just uh, before we, we move on from that, the rest of the top 10, you, uh, you've you got some, they've got some catching up to do. You've got uh, Joelle King, obviously playing some really good squash these days. Amanda Sobey, always uh, playing great squash. Uh, Noor Altayev having a great research, uh, comeback from uh, having her baby and playing tremendous squash as well. Uh, they seem to have separated themselves as well from the rest of the, the top 10. And then you've got uh, Nelly, uh, Hillis, uh, Olivia Feichter, and unfortunately Gina Kennedy was having a great season, la- uh, had a great season last year, and then she's suffering with injury now. But uh, the rest of the women's game sort of looks uh, relatively intriguing, but they've got a bit of catching up to do. Yeah, the, the 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 women's game, no doubt. When you when you filter through, like you said, let's go beyond number six. You've got the top three, and then the next three. There's a clear gap. Just look at the rankings again. The, the stats don't lie. Um, as my good mate uh, Paul Steele, I got. A, that's a, I don't know if you know that name, but he was no, no. Uh, he's a good mate of mine, and he always used to say, "Johnny, the rankings never lie." <laughs> and sure enough, they don't. And yeah. uh, the the. Uh, the three girls parked at four, five, six, King Sobe and, and El Taib, and she's done unbelievably well, obviously, post-pregnancy to just to be able to get herself back there to where she is. They El Taib's sitting at six with a, with an average of 936, and the next one sort of dropped down about 700. So there's a massive gap there, as there is yeah. also between King up to um, uh, El Hamami at number three. But uh, all of the girls in that pack, the so-called peloton, uh, as, as we were saying sort of off-air beforehand, I said the peloton is chasing but that leading group is just pushing a, a wattage, you know, at the, at the top end that they, they're finding it very difficult to go and chase, you know. Yeah. And in the meantime, they're, they're obviously battling each other just to, to hold their positions in, in tournaments and, and whatnot as well. So, But the great thing about the women's game from ranking seven, especially down to 20, mid-20s, even perhaps I'll say 30, the fitness levels are at a level I think that we've never seen before. You know, the, yeah. the, the girls come on court and you just you look at the – you look at the figures and the, and, the, and the definition of the muscles of what you see and then and you know that the, the work that's being done off court to uh, to be able to play the style that they do uh, at the pace that they do, um, it's, there's, a, there's a massive depth there which is, 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 you know, it's concrete strong at the moment. It's not going to go away. And for other girls beyond that that are fighting down lower to get into that bracket, they, they know now that there's, there's, no, there's no cheap uh, way to, to break your way into the top 30 in the women's. It's just not going to happen. 
No, there's there's too much talent there uh, across the board, and you've got like hard hard work's going to get you there, and then you've got to do something extra extra special to get anywhere close to the top three. For sure. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, they're yeah. they're the ultimate. They're, they're just providing that ultimate mix of um, you know the classic. Uh, the, the the technical skills are as as good as we've ever seen. Physically, they're as as good as anybody else as well, and they're working just as hard. And then mentally, they're on another level in terms of their belief in what they can do and how they can do it at the most cr- critical of times. Yeah, so it should be uh, should be intriguing. But I think uh, uh, the men. Uh, I would have said the opposite last year in terms of men's and women. But I think the men's game is is very intriguing right now. Uh, you've got uh, the beast uh, winning so many uh, of the events this year. Mustafa saw winning just now. And, in uh, Hong Kong, Elias playing uh, unbelievable squash uh, right now. I think the best, obviously the best he's played. Paul Cole, uh, it goes without saying. Uh, and all, uh, of course, Ali Frag. Now, we don't really know uh, the extent of his injury, uh, at least. Uh, there was a report on Squash Mad. Uh, I, th- I think it's still uh, not quite clear how severe it is. But the spot for number one is still uh, is very much up for grabs. And in my opinion, uh, I'd say by the end of the year, uh, I would argue that that Mustafa Saul, I'd say he's the front runner. But there's a, the the caveat, obviously, is he needs to play without creating uh, too much controversy. Because sometimes, you know, like like today, it went his way, but sometimes it doesn't go his way. And we've seen it happen so many times uh, where. It, it doesn't go his way and he ends up you know, either being disqualified or losing or, or whatever. And it's always for something controversial or some kind of drama. So uh, just wondering um, what you think in terms of how the season's going to play out is a, uh, is a uh, Sherbaggy going to end up taking uh, the number one spot is Ali Farag going to come back healthy and hold on to it. Is Paul Cole going to uh, take it back? I, I, I don't know. Is, uh, I mean, Paul to me, he got there. Is that what he wanted to do? Is he is he as hungry as he was? Uh, I don't know. Good questions. No, you, you, I think you're asking the right questions, and uh, it is it is intriguing that you know there's always sort of the the uh, all of the squash fans. You know they like to look at it and sort of say, what kind of an era are we in? How strong is it at the at, at the top end? You know, then it gets compared to the the golden period of, of especially sort of uh, towards the 2010 mark and then sort of beyond that when Rummy obviously was, you know, the great the, in terms of the way he was able to play in the, 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 the Maverick style and all that, he's certainly the, the most uh, incredible thing that's happened in squash, no doubt, uh, since the Khans, I would say, just in terms of the personality and the, and the squash style that he brought. And, and his peers said that about him as well, to be fair, including Mohamed El Shabagi. Uh, El Shabagi has managed to be the most consistent of his generation. There's no, there's no two ways about that. But the fact that he's been able to have a hit the reset button as he turns 32 is absolutely phenomenal. I mean, to be going, he's been going hard at it for 16 years. Um, it, it shows that, uh, yeah, that the strength of mindset and the minerals that he possesses are absolutely incredible because he's he's come through this seemingly pretty rough period where he's physically falling off the horse and mm. and and not looking at the races. Teams up with Goltier, which is obviously not a bad bloke to be teaming up with. It reminds me of the old Rocky teaming up with Apollo to get his yeah, yeah, to get the yeah. eye of the eye of the tiger and all that. So <laughs> let's let's just say that Shabagi most definitely has got the eye of the tiger back 
And uh, yeah. he has parked himself as, as definitely somebody who's got the hand well up to be world number one by the end of the season. Yeah, no he, doubt along with what he looks like now. It's, it's night and day compared to last year, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, he's won Qatar, NetSuite, New Zealand and Singapore. Now, admittedly, uh, I mean, NetSuite and, and Singapore were gold, New Zealand was silver and Qatar, but he's been super consistent throughout, um, especially since, I'll say, since the pretty much since the World Championship, since uh, where, he, where he made the final and was very, very unlucky not to win that, by the way. I, I, I was, yeah, I, it was, the game was on a knife's edge in that fourth game and Farag was was. Yeah, it was baffling, both Joey and I at the time, that Farag was, was going so short with Shabaggy in that match and somehow he, he managed to sort of swing it his way. Um, yeah. But uh, Farag's got this uncanny ability <laughs> to, yeah. to to make this front court press and somehow come out on top as the winner in, in, in the last period of his squash, which is quite amazing. Um, given the injury to Farag, there's got to be a doubt, got to be a cloud there as, as to whether that he's going to be able to hold on to that number one spot heading towards the, the end of the season. Paul Cole, who would have thought after winning the, the British Open for the second time within, within a, within a nine-month period pretty much, that he is now sort of slipped behind that, that front pack and is sort of sitting with Diego Elias maybe and now has got to hit the, you know, the reset button again, figure out what's going wrong against these guys because he's lost multiple times to Asal. He's lost multiple times to El Shabagi since yeah. El Shabagi's got the mojo back, you know. Yeah. Um, and it's... You know, I mean, obviously, you know, one, it's pretty clear for, for the viewers as well that their ability to come up with, with those big shots at the back end of games and, and, and their willingness to go for it. And, and Paul's obviously trying to set those patterns in uh, where he's obviously being a little bit more conventionally style, a little bit more reserved perhaps in terms of the way he's going to go for those shots. But that, that sort of uh, style that, that Cole does means that the, uh, the attacking shots, the, 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 especially the... The, the, the drop shot, they'll say, the, you know, the straight attack, it has to be going in regularly and it has to be going in very accurately. And as soon as you see that he's not doing that, I think, and, he, and, and the scoreboard suggesting that an El Shabag is getting on top of him or an Asal is, then that's not a good sign. And, and, and that's, the, you know, definitely the area that no doubt uh, Robin and he will be, they'll be, they'll be absolutely, you know, all over that over the next between, period. Uh, the Asal, the, the, sorry, the call of, uh, that we're seeing now and the call that got to number one, like he, he was much more efficient that way. I think so. Yeah. I mean, it was, it's interesting. You said about getting to number one and then sort of perhaps having a, um, yeah, there's sort of like some kind of an anti-climax mentally. I, I think there's been, there's been an element to that. I mean, to be, let's be fair. I mean, he was, there's no doubt he had something wrong with him in New Zealand and he fought yeah. like a warrior, like he's an absolute, I mean, he's, you know, in terms of warrior and, and, and the way he presents himself and he, he, you know, he posts those Instagram posts where he says, show up and be hard. I mean, <laughs> I don't think anybody's going to accuse him of not doing that. Like nobody no. does it better than he does. So, um, and he, and the, yeah, there was something, I mean, yeah, there was something wrong with him, you know, in, in, yeah. in New well, Zealand and that carried over. The, the last few, in a couple of tournaments too, he, he had yeah. a few niggles and then obviously what have he had uh, maybe a flu, bug or something when he played uh, Yao there. Um, yeah, yeah. So he he will have the, the – it's it's probably perfect timing now that Christmas has, has arrived and uh, he's got plenty of time to sort that out and then definitely have a rest now so that he can then do the the kind of training that he'll, he'll no doubt be doing heading towards uh, the front end of 2023, which is loaded with a with a lot of tournaments in, in uh, over in your uh, way. Uh, not where you're living right now, but where you're from, North America, there's going to be yeah, a bunch yeah. of tournaments over there. 
Um, but front runners, yeah, just one. to sum up, I mean, Muhammad and Mustafa, definitely front runners for me. Um, Diego and, 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 and Paul Cole still there, obviously nipping at the heels. Um, don't, yeah, I just don't feel that Tarek Moman's, you know, showing enough. And there's been too many losses, I think, for Moman. If you look at uh, his results, there's been quite a few three love losses to those guys in the, in the back end of this year. Which yeah. mentally is definitely not a good sign either, and he's definitely don't, let's not he's thirty-four. Yeah, 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 for sure. Um, now, just in terms of the, the the guys coming through, they are the younger guys. Obviously, we've got Victor Quinn, uh, Dalal Tamimi's played played some good squash. One guy that I've been impressed with was, is uh, Ali Abu Elanin. Yeah, Elanin. yeah. Not sure if I'm pronouncing that correctly, and and also uh, Yusuf Ibrahim, who hasn't played. Uh, at all this season, but uh, last year, I mean, he's one of the guys. I mean, he he's one of the the most exciting guys playing out there. The way he plays, yeah. I mean, he, he was he was close to beating Paul Cole in Chicago in the final, wasn't he? And he and he gave you know through that period, definitely one of uh, Muhammad El Shabagi's least favorite players to play when he was perhaps not feeling quite at the races was Ibrahim because yeah. he got some proper touch ups from Ibrahim as well during that that sort of down phase. So. Um, it will be hopefully, yeah, hopefully we're going to see Ibrahim back uh, at full tilt. Um, that will be fantastic. The other one is uh, uh, a Bulgar. Like we haven't seen him uh, yeah. around. I heard that he's back on track and he's he's going to be uh, coming back into, into the fray as well early next year. So that's going to strengthen that top end as well once again, um, in particular that, you know, the, the sort of 7 to 16 zone. Um, and that that's yeah, he's a guy. Yeah, I think it's the thing the whole be, level. He can beat any of those guys, but he just seemed he he was always he had a few matches last year where it looked like he was he he was going to do well, and then suddenly mentally he'd just start may he make a bunch of unforced errors and it, exactly, game, yeah. 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 It's the unforced errors which kill him at the critical moments. He's got he's got the the, the racket skills, he's got the speed, and he's got the yeah, he's got incredible uh hand-eye speed, which which can make him, uh, you know, the nickname, the bullet, the ball, the ball's just literally firing, peppering the front wall like a machine gun at times. But yeah, hopefully, you know, I think it's a make or break period in his career though, mentally in terms of whether or not he's going to be able to break into the top five. And sometimes we've seen in the past when players have been forced into a layoff period, that that time of reflection is, you're going to be the moment, either he figures it out or he doesn't figure it out when he comes back. And let's hope for him, no doubt that, that there's some things will have occurred in this period where the penny will drop and he just knows he's going to have to play certain situations through to beat those guys. Well, Johnny, uh, have we missed, have we left out anything? And we've, uh, you've been great with your time. It's over an hour here. Uh, we've been- oh, is it already? It was, I was having fun, mate. So that's why time flies so quickly. <laughs> Fantastic uh, having you on. Uh, have we missed out anything? Anything you, uh, anything you have going on you want to uh, share with us or... Uh- no, I think that, um, yeah, just to sort of round up what you're saying about the men, I think that with with those incredible numbers still going on in Egypt, the growth of squash in Europe, um, I've, I've sort of, you know, I've got a feeling, just a, a little feeling that, that perhaps we could be at the beginning stage of a, of a new ramping up uh, at the top end of the game where we could be heading into a new sort of, you know, from 2023 onwards, uh, the beginning of a new golden period where Mustafa is going to be a star in that period, no doubt. Muhammad's at the, in the twilight of his career, but we, we see him hanging on in the same kind of way that Nick Matthew and Greg Goldtier hung on through that great period that they played through. Um, and that's, yeah, that's the, the other thing that I think is very important for a golden period if you look back through them is that you, you need that complementation 
of the greats of their time playing out and forcing the new bloods to fight, you know, to, to ramp up the game to a new level because they, they, you know, in terms of their experience and the way that they play the game, the young bloods have to raise the, the sort of the tempo and the way the game's played to go beyond them and then push it to the next level. So we could be at the precipice of that perhaps now, I hope. Uh, definitely. It definitely bodes well. And uh, I think all the, uh, the exciting uh, squash that we talked about today, uh, we have a lot to look forward to in 2023, especially we have a lot to look forward to uh, if you're back on squash TV. It's always great to, to see you there. You and Joey, uh, PJ, you guys do such a great job. And uh, on behalf of everybody who watches squash TV, I want to say uh, thanks for, for what you do uh, for us as we watch these great uh, squash players play no thanks jerry uh, I've, I've i've always got my little uh, my little wish is that that one day we're going to get uh, the stats supply uh, of what's going on just sort of some basic fundamental stats where the court will be sected and we'll, we'll know where errors and 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 winners are happening unforced errors because there's so much there to be had i think in the analytics of squash where we, we we're just at the embryonic stage really if you compare to other sports so that's you know that that's I've always been an analytical type, and uh, and that's obviously something I try to sort of bring across uh, as as much as possible with with the commentary as well. So hopefully we're going to get more of that going into the future as well. All right, mate. Well, uh, many thanks for today, and uh, let's do it again. Uh, and also have a great Christmas and uh, New Year. You too, Jerry, and thanks very much for the for, for the time and having me on. You're doing a fantastic job with uh, with your podcast, which you seem to be pumping out at a regular rate, mate. Yeah, we're trying. We're trying. You know, I'm, I'm enjoying it. So uh, thanks, Johnny. Take care, mate. Yep. Cheers. Thanks, mate. Well, that was super, super insightful. And many thanks for Johnny for his time. That was well over an hour. Some really good stuff there. And uh, looking forward to having him back on again. I hope we can make it a regular segment. I mean, uh, the boys over at Squash Radio, Billy uh, Cunningham and uh, Connor over there, they, they have uh, PJ. Uh, I think I'm not sure what they're paying him, but uh, I think he comes on on a weekly basis. So I'm going to need a financier in order to, to get a guy like uh, John or even Joey to come on uh, my podcast on a regular uh, basis to break things down. But really great uh, insight there from Johnny. Now, just in terms of what's coming up on the podcast, we've got Nathan Lake. We've got Ali Abu Elinan. We have We Wern Low, Alan Thatcher, uh, Jackson Bragman from the Bragman Report, another uh, young podcaster out there. We're going to have a chat about some of the uh, things that he's got going on his podcast. I think he takes a, a different direction uh in terms of what he he likes to uh to talk about more uh on the i think he's a marketing guy so uh we're going to talk about maybe growing the game uh really excited about having him uh on uh, the pod as well and we've got several others in the hopper that i don't want to jinx uh, just yet but it's uh it's exciting stuff going forward um and uh, all the best to you all the best with your squash and uh, season's greetings. It's that time of year almost, isn't it? Uh, take good care. We'll be talking to you soon. And uh, again, thanks for listening. Goodbye now. <laughs>